Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs of life. Uh, today with me, I have Jennifer, who is a Gold Star daughter. And so this week for Memorial Day, uh, we, are, we are talking to some Gold Star families about their family member that paid the ultimate sacrifice. And so Jennifer, as I already said, is a Gold Star daughter of... Patrick Kordsmeyer. Patrick Kordsmeyer. And so we are going to talk about his story today. Uh, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Were you from here in central Arkansas? Yes, I grew up in North Little Rock and um, I have two older brothers and we grew up in a um, just a little small neighborhood in Sherwood and went to a private school all my life. Yeah. So that's kind of okay. my little, I have a little small town background. All right. So when you think of your dad, was he always in the army or do you remember him enlisting or anything of that nature? No, I've always remembered him being in the army. He was in the National Guard. Okay. Mm -hmm. And did you move a around a lot or was were you just based here? No, we didn't move around a lot, thankfully. Um, because he was National Guard, he worked at uh, Camp Robinson okay. and that was where he was at his whole career. Which is like 200 yards from here. Yes, yeah, I know. I feel close. it's very nostalgic for me because yeah. I feel like I grew up on Camp Robinson, always yeah. going out there. It's a beautiful place. It's big. It um, is. Uh, I've never actually been inside, but I've looked at some of the things that they have out there and I'm just like, you know, hotels or they have their own hospital, right? And, and fire department now. It's just crazy. Yeah. The size. Uh, I visited the Pentagon one time. I don't know if you've ever been inside the Pentagon. I have not. But there's a whole floor that's just like Chick-fil-A and Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell and banks and and different department stores. And I'm like, why? Why is all this in here? But they're, you know, they make it so that people who work in the Pentagon don't have to really go out in public if they don't want to. And so they they can do all their business there. Um, so growing up with your dad, what was that like with him being in the National Guard and, and you being a, a young girl here in central Arkansas? Well, I loved my dad and I really enjoyed growing up, going to Camp Robinson. He would take us and um, show us around. He was the property book officer, so he really enjoyed driving us around and showing all the different military vehicles and equipment that he had gotten in, which at the time as a kid, I was just kind of like, really? Do we have to look at any more Humvees or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I loved it. But at the same time, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. Can we go to the lake now? Because they have a lake on um, post. And so he would take us to the lake. We'd fish. And at the time, they had a pool. They don't anymore, but they had a pool. We'd go swimming and just a lot of really good memories growing up uh, with him. He was a kid person. So he loved spending time with us and um, and just, you know, taking us out there and taking us to his office. And he loved to show his family off to his military friends and buddies. And so his military guys uh, that he worked with kind of became friends of ours. Uh, you know, I still vividly remember their names and, you know, who his boss was. And, you know, we just us, you know, me and my brothers, we kind of have like a fond place in our heart for those guys. So it was really a family, mm -hmm. and my dad really grew to be close with um, the guys that he ended up training and and looking after as he kind of went up in the ranks, and he became more of the uh, you know the older one, and he kind of looked after those guys, which was one reason he wanted to to deploy. So you said he was his job was a property property book officer. Okay. He he was specifically he was a chief warrant officer. And there's five ranks within the chief warrant officer ranking. And he, um, when he was killed, he was a three, CW3. Uh, they uh, posthumously promoted him to CW4 because he had already done all the training and work for it. He really just needed to 
go through the ceremony of of getting that promotion. And I'm really glad they awarded that to him because he he had worked really hard for that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So um, at, at what point in time was uh, was there many deployments? Was there one deployment that when this incident happened or do you remember how many times he was away? This was his first deployment. Okay. okay. So this was a big deal for us. We, I remember being a teenager and there was a slight chance he would get deployed to Desert Storm. But um, or I might not have even been a teenager. I might have been younger than that. But um, that never happened. So when this deployment came up, it was like, oh, is this really even going to happen? And when it started looking like it was going to uh, to be the case that he deployed, we were all just a little shocked about it. But he he made it kind of sound like it's not going to be a big deal. I'll be safe. He kind of drew us a map of where he would be. And I think he really believed that to a certain extent. I'm sure there were things that were classified that he couldn't tell us. He used to joke about that. You know, I was classified. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> He'd laugh. <laughs> he had a he had a great sense of humor. So, mm. but yeah, it, you know, his, this was his first deployment. Uh, and he said that he wanted to deploy because he he didn't want to feel like he was sitting on the sidelines for something he had trained for his whole life. But more importantly, he told me that these guys that he uh, was entrusted with, he felt like they were his own kids in a sense because they were about my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 49 when he deployed. And so um, these young guys, he looked at them like they were his sons. And he told me he had promised their moms that he would get them home safe. And, you know, he was emotional when he was telling me this. And he, I think he knew he was leaving us, uh, our family situation, which was pretty difficult at that time. And he was giving up retirement to deploy, which was a big deal, very big deal. And that just goes to show you his character and that he was all about the mission and, and helping others. He was a very selfless person. And so he wasn't thinking about himself. Sure. Yeah. So do you remember like, you know, when you're deployed, typically they give you a time frame of how long you may be. Was that the case with him or was it just unknown? Uh, the the best that I can remember was that it was supposed to be around a year. I can't remember exactly because he wasn't there very long when the incident happened that took his life. So, you know, it, once that happened, it's kind of hard to explain, but I kind of lost some memory of mm-hmm. everything around that time. It, it's it's interesting what trauma does. It I, I have vivid snapshots of certain things, and then other details I've lost. So I know we've had con- we had conversations about his deployment and what to expect, and some of it I remember, and some of it I don't. Yeah. So uh, do you remember as as a teenager thinking, well, a year is an awful long time for my father to be gone. Do you, do you remember thinking about that time that he would not be there? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, it, it I was kind of just in a one-day-at-a-time mode at that point because, you know, I was in college. I was a senior in college. Had a lot going on with that. And his deployment on top of that, uh, it, was, it was a lot. So I was kind of already in like a survival mode and then trying to take care of my mom while he was gone. So just the thought of him being gone that long was almost something I couldn't really even process because he was the glue that held us all together. So without him, I just remember thinking, how how are we going to make this happen? Um, just because my mom has, you know, she had a lot of issues, mental struggles and that, you know, him being gone was exasperating all that. And trying to fulfill a promise to him to take care of her. You know, me and my brother's just taking it a day at a time, trying not to think too much about him being gone for that long. Right. And so you you did mention uh, that it's it's funny how your brain kind of represses things within that trauma of even, you know, him being deployed is traumatic. Uh, And so when when your brain sees things like that, it just kind of throws it into – uh, you know, a long-term memory and then represses it somehow in our subconscious so that it's not ever before us. And and that's, you know, we forget things about that. It's in there somewhere, but we forget those things. 
Have you ever noticed that as you as you tell his story, um, that you start remembering bits and pieces about about things that you have forgotten? I think it's one of those things where I try not to think a whole lot about it in my day to day life because it is so painful that when I do start to retell the story, um, yeah, things will start to come up that I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that in a while or, um, oh, I didn't remember that until just now. And usually when that happens, a fresh wave of grief comes over me and I have to, I've learned to have to sit in that, um, that it's not good to push it away. I did push it away for a really long time and I've learned that that's not healthy. (laughs) So I try to sit in it now and and feel it, but then I, I can't do that too long because it's too painful and the emotions that come up are really intense. And, you know, I'm a mom, so I've got, two kiddos have to be strong for. So I, you know, I kind of try to set aside, set aside some time, especially around Memorial Day or the anniversary of his death to process things. But for the most part, for everyday life, I try not to think about it too much. Yeah. Which, you know, is kind of the whole premise of psychotherapy or talk therapy that you continue to tell your story about how you felt in these moments. And then these other memories kind of manifest and, you talk through those with a with a counselor and so that you're not, you know, just, as you said, sitting in it for a while. And then, you know, uh, while you process some of that emotion, some of it gets repressed again because you just, you know, keep moving and keep going on. And so as as life continues, more and more of that will manifest. And and hopefully these these things that have suppressed that are traumatic will come to memory to be a good thing, you know, that that ties it together and, and not just always a bad thing. However, I would be concerned if you didn't have those moments of where the grief just came back and, and where you were sad, especially around, you know, like Memorial Day uh, of things. And, and, and I find it interesting. I'll ask this question. I could be way off base. But do you have a connection with a Memorial Day and People typically go to the lake, at least around here, and being in the lake fishing with your dad, is that kind of something that that triggers back certain memories? Yeah, you know, in 4th of July, uh, both of those holidays, Memorial Day, 4th of July, my, my dad, you know, he was very patriotic, and we come from a military background anyway with both sets of my grandparents, you know, my grandfather's serving in the military you know, we would go to uh, military ceremonies at the Arkansas Veterans Cemetery. We didn't typically, I guess, have the normal go to the lake kind of Memorial Day experience because of that, because my dad was very patriotic and really taught us the true meaning of Memorial Day. And not that there's anything wrong with going to the lake or having a cookout or whatever. Um, I certainly do those things now. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we would observe Memorial Day for what it is. We wouldn't dwell too much on it. It wasn't necessarily something I thought of as a sad day, but I think that we just kept it in focus. And, you know, I remember even 4th of July, uh, my dad getting teary-eyed when that song would come on. Do you know what song I'm talking about? I proudly stand up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Proud to be American. American. That's it. Mm -hmm. That song would come on. I can't remember the guy who sings it. And my dad would get teary-eyed. And I just remember being like, oh, gosh, dad, <laughs> getting all emotional. But now I'm the one that gets teary-eyed. Right. And now I'm a, I'm a big softy when it comes to that. Mm. And it's funny how that happens. You don't think oh, you'll ever be that way. And then you grow up. And now the national anthem tugs at my heart. Mm. And I see things differently. And sure. I think with him being in the military, he saw things differently. And I didn't realize that he had even been a casualty officer at one point. Um, I didn't know this till after he had died. So he had been one of those officers that knocked on someone's door um, and led a family through the loss of their soldier. And so he he carried that with him through those Memorial Day services and and Fourth of July services. That, that, and I didn't know that as a kid. So that kind of helps me understand looking back on it now why he was so tenderhearted towards that. Right. And death notifications is like the hardest thing to do. Um, I I was a police officer for many years, and 
I would do death notifications. And it was very difficult because the family would have all of these questions that you didn't have answers to. And what I found even in, in uh, interviewing some Gold Star families is that while there may have been answers, it wasn't answers that could be given at that time, you know, due to the nature mm -hmm. of their deployment or the nature of the the mission or uh, whatever that they were on. And so that that could be very difficult. Now, you, you mentioned that your grandfather was also in the military. Was he also in the Army? Uh, Navy. Navy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, did you kind of feel like your dad was just trying to follow in the footsteps or was he really that person that, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Oh, it was definitely what he was supposed to do. Uh, it was, it's very clear. And especially now it's like, I, I still have people from his brigade that come up to me and, and tell me, you know, when he died, the whole property book division, like it just fell apart. Like he was, he was the property book. It was like, he had the serial numbers memorized and mm. he was incredibly smart driven, uh, dedicated to the job. And it was something he was just a natural at. So, sure. yeah. And I'm sure there maybe was some wanting to follow in his dad's footsteps, but if it, if that was it, he never expressed that to me. Right. So your dad's been deployed. Where was he deployed to? Uh, he was specifically in Taji, Iraq. Okay. And this was during Desert Storm or which? which... Operation Iraqi Freedom. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which was... In the 90s? So he, he was deployed in 2004. Okay. Um, well, technically, I think his deployment began in 2003. They began training, and he went to Fort Hood and trained. Um, 2004 is when he actually went to Iraq, though. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what was his, what was his uh, assignment going to Iraq? Well, he was going to be the property book officer for the brigade, and being a warrant officer, they're highly— uh, specialized officers. And um, so anything that the brigade needed, he made sure they got everything. And, you know, like I said, I still have his fellow soldiers that come up to me all these years later and say, well, you know, if, you know, if anything we ever needed, um, you know, if we went to Pat, we knew, they called him Pat, mm -hmm. we knew we could get it, you know, our chief, they called him chief. And they trusted him. There was a lot of trust that that went with him. So that was his specific task was making sure that the brigade was supplied. Okay. So what exactly happened once he was there with the incident? Well, he, was, he wasn't there long, um, only a few weeks when he, the brigade started to notice that there were a lot of mortar attacks. I think more than they had thought there would be. These attacks were um, specific to this camp. And they kind of started seeing a pattern where at a certain time of day, these uh, mortars would be launched over into their camp. And so they would, okay, well, it's early morning, it's time for these mortar attacks. And uh, one of them came early in the morning. It wasn't even sunrise yet. They all went back you know, into their bunkers for safety. And my dad was one of the ones helping get all of the soldiers to safety, which is totally like him. Uh, to do that. And um, once the mortar attack stopped, they were used to the attack being over at that point. And for some reason on this particular day, April 24th, 2004, the enemy re-engaged. They decided to launch another immediate attack. And um, my dad and three other soldiers who were uh, talking out right outside the bunker that mortar landed right at their feet. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it just took them off guard. They didn't expect it. From everything that I've learned secondhand from, you know, just soldiers telling me what happened, there was a lot of chaos uh, at that point. You know, some of my dad's really close friends that had known him for a long time were there, which breaks my heart because I know they have their own trauma now um, that they have to live with. So they, my dad lived through the initial attack there. His injuries were really, really bad, though. They did all they could for him. I uh, got a really nice letter from uh, one of the chaplains there that kind of told what that whole scene was like. And he said the care that he received was really, really good. You know, people that were caring for him 
really uh, tried hard. They loved him. You could tell. And like I said before, these guys were like family, you know, and they did all they could to save him, but it was just too much. They um, they med flighted him to Baghdad, and he passed away on the helicopter. Okay. Within all of that happening, how long was it that before you and your family was notified that that this incident had taken place? Did you know before he passed away, or was it until after he passed away that you were notified? Well, it was after. Okay. You know, they shut down all communication there at the uh, at Camp Taji whenever there's um, any sort of casualty because they don't want any sort of information getting out before the family's notified. And so that had happened before when he was there <clears throat> where he had told us, well, they shut down all the communication because there was a casualty. So that happened, you know, within his situation as well. And uh, in fact, my Aunt Barbara, which is my dad's little sister, said that she was watching the news and that the news had reported there was some sort of incident involving our American soldiers. She, just something in her, she just knew. That, of course, her and my dad had a really close relationship and a strong connection. And uh, I didn't see anything like that on the news. Of course, I was, again, I was a college student, so I didn't, I wasn't watching a whole lot of TV at that time. But the, the first notice that we got was official notice was the the two soldiers knocking on the door. My mom had called me and I was it was just a normal day. I was my head was in uh you know college mode where I was thinking about a paper I had to write. I remember being very stressed about that. And this is one of those moments my brain took a snapshot of. Mm-hmm. I will never forget this moment. Um, it's very vivid in my memory. I remember what the weather was. I remember what I was looking at. I mean, it was just, it was a very painful moment. But um, when my mom called, I answered the phone and she was crying. And she said, they killed your daddy. Mm-hmm. And and I knew, you know, from the sound of her voice that, you know, I, it's like, you know, how do you process that sentence, first of all? I mean, she would never just say something like that. And so I thought, what? You know, and I, I knew I knew what she was saying, but it was just, I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, two soldiers came to, to our door. And the way she said that, I mean, it was like she could barely talk. And I just, like, my whole world fell apart. I mean, my dad was my world. And he was the one who encouraged me to go to college, the one who was my cheerleader, the one that when I walked into a room, he lit up, you know, he, um, he was proud of me. And up until the time that I married my husband, of course, I had been married two years at that time. But before I'd met my husband, he was pretty much my only cheerleader in life. You know, he was just so precious to me. So, you know, to think that these soldiers were at my mom's door and giving her this news, I just, I was like, what? And I immediately became angry, which is looking back on it kind of weird. I'm not really an angry person. I got really mad. And I remember throwing the phone and and saying something that I can't say here (laughs) on your (laughs) podcast. And we immediately got into the car, my husband and I, and drove straight to my parents' house to see my mom. And, you know, I walk in and, of course, you know, family started to arrive. My dad's sister was there and I remember seeing her face. And she didn't, I just don't remember ever seeing her cry a whole lot before, but she was very, you know, emotional. And you know, in that moment, you're thinking, is this really happening? There's this, it, it kind of started to feel like a bad dream at that point. And after that's just kind of where the fog starts, in a sense, and where I kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, start to lose track of uh, some of the, the details of what happened. But it was one of the worst moments of my life, for sure. Yeah, it, it seems like in those situations, uh, when we receive news like that, it just kind of all time stands still. Yeah. 
you know, and it just really does kind of feel like a fog. And is this really, really happening? At what point in time did you come to the realization that this really is real and just have that, I don't want to call it uh, a breakdown moment, but that moment that it just became real? Oh, gosh. It took a little bit because of the way the military handles that sort of situation. Of course, I didn't have any idea how, you know, what the protocol was, but uh, apparently it was protocol for them to uh, give the family 24 hours after they initially you know, notify them of their loved one's death. I was not happy about that. <laughs> and I was kind of a fierce protector of my dad. Just growing up, I always wanted to protect him. And that's a whole other story in and of itself as to probably why I'm that way. But it was, to me, unacceptable not to have answers. I wanted, I had all these questions that I wanted answers for. And my mom's devastated and can't really function at that point. My brothers are, you know, equally as devastated. And so I kind of rose up as being the one who started asking questions and demanding, kind of became a leader. I'm not a natural born leader, but I've kind of became a leader at that point, trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, the news media, they were calling us at that point too. And they're asking us questions. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't know what's going on. I wanted to know where his body was. I was like, I don't, I, I remember telling when the media called, I just said, I don't even at this point believe that he's dead because I haven't seen any information about this. What if it's a mistake? So I, there was some definite denial. Uh, I want to say it was when it wasn't until he was in the funeral, you know, I saw him at the funeral home that it finally started really sinking in. Wow, this is him. But they have this protocol where they fly uh, the soldier to Delaware to Dover Air Force Base, and they process them there. And, uh, of course, like I said at the time, I didn't know that they did that. I was like, well, why are they flying him to an Air Force Base? Like, what is, I don't even understand what is happening. But after that 24 hours, we got, we did have a casualty officer assigned to our family. And he started telling us, well, you know, they're flying his body to the to Dover. They're going to take care of him there. And they start answering some questions. And so that certainly helped. And our casualty officer, bless his heart, you know, he was so patient. And um, when I was kind of angry and all, you know, riled up, he calmed me down. And uh, so then it started to kind of make more sense as to why they did things the way they did things. And they took really good care of him. And that's something at the time I didn't realize that they were doing. But now that I'm you know, more removed from it and had time to kind of learn. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Taking Chance. Uh, Kevin Bacon is in that movie. You should see it. It's a okay. good a good uh, Memorial Day type movie to watch. But it's about a soldier, a young soldier who's killed, and this lieutenant colonel rises up and becomes his uh, escort to escort him home. And Kevin Bacon plays that character who escorts this soldier back home and he's with him through the whole process. Uh, so when he goes to Dover and they process him and get him cleaned up and put him in his uniform, it there's a scene in that movie, it shows the care that they take to clean up these soldiers and to dress them and to make them look, um, even if their body's not gonna be shown at all in the funeral, they make them look as distinguished and dignified. And I think that is so beautiful. And that means a lot to me to know that my dad was taken care of in that way. And I wish I would have known in the moment that's what was going on. I didn't know that's what they were doing. But that's, yeah, that's a really good movie. I recommend that. It's called Taking Chance. Uh, it's one of, I think it's probably the best movie Kevin Bacon's ever done. Uh, it was really, it's based on a true story too, which makes it even more um, impactful. But the... The moment that it sank in for me, I think, was was walking in uh, to the funeral home and seeing him. And we we did get to go to the airport and see him flown in. So that was really difficult to see him loaded off the plane. And, you know, you think when he comes home from deployment, you kind of have this idea of the way it's going to be. And you don't think he's going to come home like that. And we had had this going away party for him. Big, big party when he deployed 
And so you just think, well, we'll have this big party for when he comes home. And here he's coming home in a casket. And it's it's just, there's no way to really describe what that feels like to know the most important person that's been in your life since you were born is is now there in that in that condition um and you do still have so many questions like what were his injuries and what exactly did happen because you know they don't tell you just a whole whole lot but and I did eventually learn those those details uh and just all of it's just very traumatic and it's it's unlike anything of losing a loved one here because when you lose a loved one here you get to pretty much immediately be with them. But in this situation, your mind kind of starts going into all of these scenarios. Well, was he scared? Uh, did he suffer? Did he have any last words? What did he say? What was he thinking? Um, that I think was the hardest and still the hardest thing for me is just to think of him being alone without any family. But what makes me feel better is the letter that I got from the chaplain and from, um, you know, I've heard stories from the medics that worked on him. That, I mean, he wasn't alone. So that makes me feel good. And just to hear little details about, I mean, I know this maybe to some people might seem, not seem like a big deal, but he had, uh, he wore glasses. So his glasses had fallen off and he was concerned about his glasses he wanted his glasses, and I just thought, oh, that's kind of sweet. But, you know, and he was that he was uh, conscious enough to be worried about his glasses. He must not have been suffering too much. And the medics were saying that his body was in shock, so he probably wasn't in too much pain. And so little details like that, I kind of hold on to and think, okay, he, I don't think he was, you know, suffering a lot or in a lot of pain, and they took good care of him. And that's really comforting to know. But again, just not being there, not, not able to hold his hand or say goodbye, not immediately able to see his body, that was incredibly difficult and actually really still is. I think that'll always be kind of a, a wound I carry, I carry with me. Sure. So the first time that you ever did actually see him was at the funeral home. Yes. Okay. Do you, were you kind of still in that denial stage of grief until you got to that point where you actually saw him? If I'm really honest about it, I, I kind of used that denial as a coping mechanism because even after the funeral, I, uh, I went into kind of a denial and just pretending that he was, still here, but that I was just too busy to see him and, and did that for a long time until I figured out that was really not healthy. But yeah, seeing him there at the funeral home in the casket, it just, of course, he had sustained a lot of injuries and they did an amazing job with him, but you could tell that he had had injuries and that was really difficult to know that and to see just the visible signs of that. You know, it's, I think that there's this part of our brain that just won't really allow us to accept anything that's that painful in the moment. It, I think I was in survival mode, to be honest with you. It was just survive the day. And I wasn't sleeping a lot. I wasn't eating for sure. And so seeing him in that condition, it was just too much. And I just immediately started going through the motions, which is, I, th I think that's why a lot of it's kind of foggy to me, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. But I was immensely proud of him, though. So I felt very proud of just how brave he was. And I remember feeling that. And there was a lot of respect shown during that time, too. Just the way they uh, cared for him, the military guys, they put a guard on each side of his casket at the funeral home. And, the, you know, they they were dressed just in their their uniforms and they uh, they stood by his side and they he was just so taken care of. And and that really helped to kind of see that 
his death was not in vain. It was, there was just this profound sense of gratitude from the military for the sacrifice he had made. And so I thought, wow, okay. You know, he died doing what he loved and, and what he believed in. So that kind of helped, I think, a little bit with the denial in that it kind of helped my mind to to process that this was something that he loved doing and it wasn't like he died for nothing, uh, if that makes any sense. So, but yeah, the denial thing was a very real thing I struggled with for sure. Yeah, and so then there comes the acceptance, you know, yeah. of this is, this is really taking place. Um, you know, as a, as a minister, uh, I've, I've buried a lot of people. Did two funerals just this last week. And when you get to the point of, of the committal service of where they're actually buried, um, that brings a whole new wave of emotion. I assume he was buried at the National Cemetery here. Yes, in North Little Rock. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do, do you remember a lot about that service there? I do. It was one of the most beautiful but heartbreaking moments. Um, We were in the uh, limousine for the funeral home that they had provided for us. And of course, we're following the hearse and they had this this whole uh, line of cars that were following uh, from the funeral to the um, cemetery. And I just remember being amazed at how many people got out of their cars and put their hands over their heart. Um, Older veterans had gotten out and were standing uh, along the streets saluting. And they had, the city of North Rock had these, uh, you know, they had gotten the fire trucks and um, they put their ladders up to where they could put a uh, American flag over, arched over the, the roadway. And just a sense of appreciation from the community. And that was really beautiful. Of course, his funeral was packed. I mean, gosh, I want to say there were probably 500 people there. I mean, it was a lot of people. And just the whole funeral and the the funeral procession, all of it was beautiful. And he does, of course, as his daughter, I'm like, he totally deserved this, but he would just be, he was such a humble guy. He'd just be like, oh my gosh, why are y'all making such a big deal about this? And and we kind of, we kind of smiled thinking about that, how he would just be like, oh, don't make a fuss over me. And, mm-hmm. but he, yeah, we, we got to the cemetery and the whole funeral was beautiful. They played taps. They did a 21 gun salute for him. And it was a beautiful day outside, which felt very weird to me. I remember noticing that. And it, actually each year when the weather turns in April and May, it's kind of bittersweet for me because when it's so gorgeous outside, of course, here in Arkansas, the spring's really pretty anyway, but the blue skies and the green trees and all the flowers blooming. And I just remember thinking, wow, it's so beautiful outside. And I feel so sad on the inside. And just the contrast of that and knowing that he loved being outside and he would have loved that weather. He would have loved being there and and seeing how beautiful everything was, but he's not there. And so that's something that I remember was his funeral being just beautiful, but then feeling so intensely heartbroken. That was the beginning of when it did start to kind of sink in for me because, you know, I had to say goodbye to him, his physical body. And I knew he wasn't in that physical body. I, you know, as a Christian, I obviously believed that he was with Jesus, but, you know, still, I mean, that was my daddy in that casket. And now they were about to bury him. And, you know, it was April 24th when we lost him. It was May 5th when we buried him. To me, that felt like a lifetime between the 24th and May 5th. You know, this journey of getting his body home and, you know, going through the funeral arrangements at the funeral home with the funeral director and having him there, you know, at the, um, we did a rosary for him. He's Catholic. So we did a rosary for him and that whole ceremony the day before his funeral. And it was just, it's, it's this whole journey of him with his 
you know, with his body and then now having to bury the body. It was, I just felt like I was leaving him there. And I just remember having a hard time leaving the cemetery. And even that Christmas, I remember, because me and my dad had this thing about Christmas, that was like our holiday. And I just remember taking him a little Christmas tree out there because I felt like I just left him. And again, it sounds so weird. Cause it's like, I know he's not there, but I felt like he was there, mm. if that makes sense. And so I um, I did have a hard time with that. But And seeing his name on his tombstone was something else that even all these years later, I mean, it's been 17 years, still seeing his name on there, I'm like, oh, gosh, that's painful. Yeah. yeah. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't sound weird at all, uh, the little things that that we do that, that make a difference for us and, and celebrating the, their memory and, and all that they, they did for us. This, um, typically, you know, two or three days after the funeral, things kind of life has, is, is forced to go back to what we would perceive as normal. Uh, how, how did that affect you in the the couple of days after where you had to get back into your routine? Well, yeah, life doesn't stop. And I was, like I mentioned earlier, a senior in college. So I was trying to uh, finish all of my um, senior uh, work that had a big paper due and, a, you know, trying to wrap up all the details to graduate. You know, my graduation was coming up. And I ended up graduating just a couple of weeks, few weeks after the funeral. <clears throat> so that was really hard because my dad, he was really proud that I had gone to college. I was the only one of his, uh, the of his kids to go. And he had told me to record it for him. And of course, that's what's going through my head as I'm there at graduation. Is I'm supposed to be recording this for my dad. And now there's no reason to record it because he can't see it anyway. But yeah, just looking around and seeing everybody else's parents and, you know, seeing that they're laughing and having a great time and smiling and everybody's back to normal. And here I'm standing here with this, what felt like this <clears throat> gaping wound and there's just nothing I can do about it. It's, it's, it's like you just carry around this pain that, um, you know, you're just going to have to deal with. And I remember, I do remember getting a card in the mail a couple of weeks after he, uh, after the funeral and that some, to know that somebody had thought of me even after the funeral was a big, a big thing for me that was very impactful. And I was very grateful for that. I remember standing at my mailbox and crying because <laughs> mm -hmm. I thought, oh, somebody still, you know, notices and remembers. And I've, I've carried that with me for other people who've lost loved ones. I try to think about them after the funeral. Um, but that's that's hard. And, you know, you're like just even walking around in the grocery store and I'd see a soldier in his um, what we call BDUs, mm -hmm. their battle dress uniform. And just the emotion that that would bring up in me. That was hard. It still kind of is. If I see a guy in BDUs, I'm like, oh, because, you know, that I grew up seeing my dad wear that all the time you don't really move on from a loss like this. I mean, I know that they say time heals all wounds. I mean, it really does. I mean, you you get used to it, I guess, is what you could say. You get used to a new normal. But when you lose someone who is like the glue that held your family together, and then you see your family kind of start to fall apart after that. And when I say my family, I mean like my mom and my brothers. Luckily, my husband and I were very, you know, we have a very strong relationship. So we were good. But with my mom and my brothers, it was very difficult. And there was no going really back to normal for us and our family unit. And so it was just this scramble to try to take care of my mom and make sure she's okay. And and she wasn't, and we knew that. And so that was a very long journey mm -hmm. of having to put pieces back together. You mentioned, um, you know, when you would see other soldiers in BDUs that it just kind of brought back memories. And uh, that's uh, for those people who, who don't live around these parts, it's almost impossible to go to any public place without seeing 
somebody in some kind of BDU or military uh, yes. style style uniform and uh, between the Air Force Base and, and Camp Robinson here, uh, we're just kind of a melting pot of, of military. Yeah. So you mentioned that, that your mother wasn't okay and that your, your brothers and they kind of had a hard time adjusting. Was there any specific thing that you did that, that kind of held that together? Oh, goodness. Right after my dad died, my oldest brother, he went with some family friends and kind of just disappeared. That was his way of coping. And my middle brother, he stayed and he lived with my mom still. And so she at least wasn't alone, but he has his own mental struggles as well. He has severe anxiety and depression issues. And so here you're talking about having my mom who has a mental illness, specifically borderline personality disorder and depression, and my brother who had depression, and they're living together. And it's like, okay, I have to make sure that they're okay. And they eventually kind of found their their new normal. So in the long run, they ended up being okay. But there at the beginning, you know, we were going over there, you know, quite a bit to check on them. And there were some moments where I just was overwhelmed with her emotional reactions, my mom being concerned about her. And she ended up actually having open heart surgery, I want to say six months after he passed. So it took a toll on her physically, for sure. And, you know, just trying to be a good listener for her and trying to be present emotionally, checking on them. It's difficult when, this is where the story gets a little complicated. It's difficult with my mom because of her mental condition. She didn't realize she had a mental condition. And so she could become difficult to be around and she would push people away. That was hard. Just hearing my dad's voice in the back of my head saying, take care of your mother, take care of your mother, because he worried about her constantly and he adored her and loved her and really wanted the best for her. So my middle brother ended up really stepping up and, and you know, he lived because he lived with her and, and taking care of her and making sure she was okay on her for her daily needs. I was always kind of try, try to be the peacemaker in the family. And so I feel like that was, that's still kind of my role is trying to, mm-hmm. to kind of keep the peace and, and keep everybody, you know, getting along. But, you know, when you go through something like that and you have the other parent who you, you would hope ideally would be, would step up and be the strong one. And she was not able to do that, which is um, kind of a trauma in and of itself. Sure. Which borderline personality disorder has its own complications just with the disorder and and add this trauma on top of all of it, 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 you know, can can really send someone into a tailspin, especially, you know, then with a heart condition, you know, where she had to have surgery that uh, our mental health is, is our physical health. And we really do have to keep those things in check. But even as, you know, going through this loss and the trauma of all of it, we, we have to keep that in check, too, and, and, and try to process it. Um, now, you said you and your husband had a very strong relationship. So uh, I guess you used, I hate to say you used him, but, but you know what I mean. You, yeah. you, you were able to communicate with him to kind of process through what you were feeling. Oh, yeah. He was... He's always been in my corner and my biggest, uh, you know, comforter when things have gone wrong um, in life. And so I relied really heavily on him and his parents, too. I remember being uh, they were very supportive and um, I have really great (laughs) in-laws. So I'm very blessed in that. But, yeah, my husband was definitely my rock through that. And he's he's just amazing because even now there are these ceremonies that we get invited to, uh, like here at Camp Robinson, just the, the beginning of this month, they had a memorial service that honored all of the National Guardsmen who had been 
killed in action. And so he goes with me to those ceremonies still, even all these years later. And he doesn't ever seem put out or like he's tired of it. And that's a big part of my just healing and recovering. Sure. Yeah. Now, the Arkansas National Guard honored your father in a very unique way. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So in October of 2015, uh, they dedicated the 39th Brigade Headquarters uh, to him and named the building after him. So his name is now on a building, the headquarters for the 39th. Uh, there at Camp Robinson, which is so, gosh, it just means a lot because, like I had said earlier, growing up going to Camp Robinson, all these amazing, wonderful childhood memories there and memories of my dad. And now he has this building named after him. I mean, who would have ever thought when we were out there fishing or, you know, when he was driving us around to show us all this stuff that he would have a building there with his name. It's just an honor the National Guardsmen have been just so supportive of us. They're always telling us when we go out there, you you have a family here and we're here to support you, whatever you need. And if you're ever on post, you should drive by and, and look at it. It's really beautiful. And on the inside, they have this really nice area on the left where they have a plaque with his uh, story of what happened. And so it's just, uh, yeah, it was a real honor. They had a whole ceremony, the Adjutant General that was uh, there when he was in in the service. He was there to um, to give a speech, a nice speech. Don Morrow was his name, and he and my dad were really good friends. Um, so that meant a lot to see uh, General Morrow up there giving a speech. And he got a little emotional because, you know, he loved my dad. And uh, I have photos of that of that whole ceremony and that day. And I keep that in a scrapbook to show my boys and to just, you know, remember and to honor. Yeah. So at that, um, at that service where, where they, I guess, officially dedicated this building to your dad's honor, was there any type of closure that you received there to know that, yes, my father was killed in action, but, his memory will live on forever. Was there any type of closure that you received in that in that moment? Definitely. Yes. And how important was that to you? It was hugely important. That whole ceremony was so healing and even now when I go back on post be you know just driving by there and seeing that. And it's funny cuz I know that my dad if he was here, if he saw that, he would just be like, "Oh my gosh, take that name down off that building." <laughs> so I kind of laugh when I see it cuz I think, "Oh, he would hate this." <laughs> <laughs> he would not think he was deserving. Um that's just the kind of guy he was. But I kind of laugh and think, "Ha, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. They mm. named a building after you and you deserved it." So, right. there you go. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was very it's very healing and I'm very proud of him. It's definitely something that's been good for for me and my brothers and and my mom too. She passed away two years ago, but when she was here, I know that that meant a lot to her as well. Sure, and and it's good that that we're able to do those kind of things, you know, to to make sure that the legacy uh, moves forward and moves on. And um, of course, in in Arkansas at the Capitol uh, grounds, there is the Gold Star or the family memorial there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are these memorials that we set up and, and we do, and it and it's good to have one that is positive where, you know, you go to his grave and, and you, not that the negative is there, but that the hurt is kind of buried there. And then you see all of these things that honor him. And that really begins to help that healing and that, that closure come through. So as as being a Gold Star family member, what is that what is that title, Gold Star daughter? What does that mean to you? Well, you know, it's a mixture of emotions. I mean, obviously, I mean, no one wants to be a member of the Gold Star family because uh, that means you've lost your loved one, but it is an honor because I know that there's this, you know, sacrifice that was made to keep our freedom. And 
So I certainly feel, you know, proud, I guess, in a way. Um, it's like I said, you know, it's, it's bittersweet. It's um, it's hard because you go to these ceremonies and you, you do feel proud, but you feel, you know, a loss. I mean, you know, you lost your loved ones and all those memories come back of the soldiers knocking on the door and, you know, uh, his funeral and hearing taps. They usually play taps at these um, ceremonies that we go to and it brings everything back. And I usually end up leaving and crying mm -hmm. <laughs> and kind of going through a grief and I get really tired. I'm usually really tired on those days and my husband knows to kind of let me take a nap later on. And so it's just this weird mixture of emotions. I, I think being a gold star daughter, I feel a passion to educate others about what that really means. I know that there are people who don't know what a gold star family member is. And so just to, to really help people understand the sacrifice that the soldier makes and the sacrifice the families make and why that's important. You know, freedom isn't free and it comes at a very, very high price. And not only do these soldiers pay for it with their lives, but the families pay for it. And every time I see my boys growing up without their grandfather, you know, I think about that sacrifice and, you know, it's hard, but, but yeah, the Gold Star family community has been a big part of my healing because uh, there's a lot of support there from other Gold Star families, people who've uh, been able to share their story with me and, and to know that I have somebody who understands what it's like to have that kind of loss has been helpful. Sure. So if you could say one thing to somebody who may be dealing with the loss of a loved one uh, due to combat or, or military deployment, what would your, what would your words to them be? I would say to have a lot of grace for yourself and there's no wrong way to feel and to not push away the grief, but to, to make sure you sit in it and feel it, but to do it in a way where you can cope with it. You know, don't feel like you have to sit in it for too long. I would also try to remind them that, and this is for anybody struggling with grief, is when you feel grief, it's because you loved that person. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite quotes about grief is, um, what is grief if not love persevering? And, you know, your love for your love, the love you have for your family member is, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. So really you know, grief in a weird way is a positive thing. It's just this outpouring of love that you still love this person. And that's why 17 years later, I still grieve over my dad. You know, I used to kind of be perplexed. I mean, why am I still grieving? It's like, you know, because I still love him and I'll always love him. I mean, if I live to be 90, I'll still grieve over my dad's death because he's missed out on a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, anybody who's grieving the loss of a loved one, I mean, they're grieving not just the loss, but also the loss of future moments. So, you know, birthdays and anniversaries and holidays and milestones that their loved one's going to miss, they have to grieve those things too. So I would just say to, you know, I'd give permission to anyone who's lost a loved one. You have permission to grieve. It's okay. And you have permission to not you know, quote unquote, move on. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to move on from your loss of your loved one. I think it's important to find, like you were saying earlier, a, a positive way of looking at things for sure. And it's it's good to find healing, but you don't ever have to forget your loved one in order to heal. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that that I say constantly, I feel like, not just in grief, but in everyday life, however you feel, it's okay to feel that way. Just just don't unpack and live there. Mm, and um, we we kind of have to keep that going. And, and I, you know, I would also say grief isn't a bad thing. You know, it's an emotion that we have to deal with. And it is, we do deal with it because we love that person yeah. that we've, that we've lost. Jennifer, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today and, and honoring your dad. And, and um, it, it's a difficult story to tell. Um, and we tell these stories, we kind of reopen some of the things that, 
that uh, are difficult and, and process. And uh, you said before the interview, uh, you don't always get emotional telling the story, but it's afterwards that, yes. you know, that it kind of all settles in. So I hope you're able to process that and, and, and not be too difficult for you today. Well, thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, and to our listeners, we thank you for listening today. Of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at thedocbryan.com. All of my social media links are there at the bottom of that page. Of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Thank you again for listening, Jennifer. Thank you again for being here with us. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, telling us about your father. All right, everybody, have a great day, and make sure to catch us again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>